Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brand Your Practice podcast, where you get to learn about marketing, growing, and managing your private practice. I'm Brent Stutzman, and today we're going to be talking about this subject that is surging among private practice owners, especially group practice owners. In light of the IRS looking to hire 87,000 new agents to go tax collecting, and the topic is this, contractors versus employees. What's the difference? How can we make the right decision for our practice when we are looking to hire a contractor or an employee? Because there are risks that we need to address and risks that you need to think about. And to help me to do that today is Daniel Mayer. He is a Maryland-based attorney and the principal attorney of Mayer Law, which specializes in working with and representing mental health practitioners and mental health practices. In addition to Mayer Law, Daniel is the legal counsel for Pro Bono Counseling, a Maryland nonprofit that connects uninsured and low-income Marylanders with therapists on a volunteer basis at no cost. Daniel is also the legal counsel for the Maryland Counseling Association, which is the trade organization for Maryland licensed clinical therapists. And Daniel also has a podcast where he co-hosts called the Protecting Your Practice Podcast which focuses on the legal, ethical, and compliance considerations practitioners and practices need to be considering. Dan is also married to a forensic psychologist who owns a large group practice that operates in multiple states. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Wow, that sounds much more impressive Like when you're reading it than I think about it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, I'm glad you're with us to discuss this. Uh, and before we jump in, is there anything that could be helpful for our listeners to know about you sure. other than the the uh, li- the introduction that I just gave? Um, I am a Ravens fan and a Giants fan. Does that count? Or, you know, are you talking more clinical, like you know, by practice-based? Um, now, practice-based, uh, you know, we my practice is focused, as you said, on um, working with practitioners. The topic we're talking about today comes up a lot. Um, you know, especially when you have a, a practitioner who started or owns a practice and then decided they want to move to the group model, um, you know, that's one of the first questions they have is, well, you know, should I be doing a W-2? Should I be doing a 1099? Or how should that work? Um, things like that. So this is one of those topics where it's very near or if not at the top of the list of questions and topics we cover uh, with practitioners who have group practices or want to start group practices. And yeah. it's also ongoing. Yeah, we'll like there's, there's never an end to this discussion, right? As you add right. people and things like that, this question always comes back up. Yeah. You know, and for a lot of practice owners, you probably started off with contractors, right? It's the safest. It's the easiest, low risk. Uh, but as you start to grow and you start getting into the labor laws and reading some of the fine print, you're like, well, maybe that's not, not – maybe not the best option because we often – as we might find out, we often treat contractors like employees, and that's a big no-no when it comes to the IRS. <laughs> I I find with the practices I work, it's almost like an organic thing, right? The practices that do it best are the ones that it happens organically, right? I agree with you that when you're starting off the group practice, contractors can be the easiest model to use, but there is an organic you know, growth to it, and it does reach a point, and I've talked to enough practitioners who have confirmed this for me, that when they're talking to their accountants and things like that, um, they're talking to me, that there comes a point where it doesn't make as much sense to have the contractor. It may not be the safest model to have the contractor, and to grow further, the contractor is not the right model for them anymore. And so they either start to convert those contractors to W-2 employees, or they start hiring W-2 employees. Right. Yeah, and there's lots of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that, like you know, as you grow group practice, you actually want to control the culture more, and you Correct. want people to come to staff meetings, and you you know you want to have more demands on their time, mm-hmm. and that's where you really start to cross that line over from contractor to employee, and that's just not sustainable, especially kind of those larger, you know. V- philosophical reasons of why starting a, a group practice. Yeah, I think the I think the um, culture, that's a big deal, right? Because if you're building a practice where it's vibrant and you want people to like being there, um, loyalty is important because if you're putting time, resources, and hiring, you know, a lot of practices that I work with often may have one or two or three um, 
uh, well, in Maryland we call them graduate uh, professional counselors or you know graduate licenses, right? Um, people have just graduated to have some sort of provisional license. You know, the idea would be if you're training this person, if you're doing supervision for this person, the ideal is to have this person grow up through your practice and and really stay there. Well, you know, to get that loyalty, to get that retention, a contractor is not always going to cut it. So if you're investing all this time and resources in really developing a great workplace, um, you want someone who's going to be loyal and someone who's investing in your practice. Contractors, as I'm sure we'll discuss, um, for a number of reasons, don't have that, right? But with employees, you certainly can. Yeah, yeah. So the way we're going to, so our listeners know, the way we're kind of framing this podcast episode is first, we're going to talk about contractors, employees, and broad strokes. We kind of get the groundwork. Mm -hmm. And then second, I think it'd be important to know just the upfront, what are the financial risks for the practice owner Mm -hmm. if they misclassify a contractor when they should really be an employee? Mm -hmm. And then we have a document that we're going to kind of just work through uh, what the IRS uses, the common law test, to determine if your contractor should be classified as an employee and just kind of work through some of It's a bigger document. And I'm going to have something on our website, on Branger Practice website, where you can download this. It's like a little checkbox, you know. It's like it might be an employee if, and you can you could determine for yourself. So why don't you just, Dan, if you could just in broad strokes, yeah. um, from the a practice owner's financial perspective, like what's really the difference between a contractor and an employee? Yes, this is why I love talking about this. Um, so <laughs> when talking about this topic with uh, my clients um, or prospective clients, you know, I like to stress right off the bat to clinicians that um, the very term, the name itself, tells you something about what's happening with an independent contractor, for example, right? Um, and a contractor is an independent worker, right? They're hiring, you're hiring to do a specific task or job. Um, you know, and typically when we talk about contractors, we're talking about someone who can work for whoever they want. They can't be restricted. Um, I say they are independent, right? Now they may have their own business, their own LLC, right? Or they may be by themselves, but they are independent of your business. Um, you know, with employees, it's more you're hiring someone who's going to be long term, um, maybe a permanently employed member of your staff. Um, they can be on payroll. They can be receive benefits. Um, you can set their schedule. You cannot set the schedule of a contractor. Um, and you do have a large degree of control over the work, how they work, when they work, and that type of thing. In states like Maryland, uh, where I am, that are at will, um, that means you can hire and fire at will, and they can also quit. Um, at will. Um, And you can also then have restrictive covenants such as non-competes and things like that. Um, And they're also typically, employees tend to have a lot more rights when it comes to discrimination, labor laws, and certain pay and leave entitlements. So it's really serious and it's really um, a big deal, the difference between contractors and employees and why you don't want to mix these up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also like one of the things that some people don't realize is that with with employees, there's more financial cost to the mm-hmm. uh, practice owner. So you're covering what, like seven and a half percent of the payroll tax. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the man. This is the other crazy thing I didn't know about this until I had my own employees. Is the unemployment insurance, employment, uh, social security, you know, yeah. all that stuff, right? With contractors, it's I'm paying you to do X, right? Great. Now the rest of it, it's, it's on you. Like you've got to pay your own taxes. You've got to pay your own you know, benefits if you want them. You know, if you have your own uh, contractors or employees for your own, you know, sub business, right? You're responsible for all the costs associated with that, right? Employees mm-hmm. typically you're going to take on a lot of those costs as an employer. Yeah, you know, we were, before the show we were talking about like a contractor. Think of it as like a contractor, like a plumber. I love this. So if you need if yeah, yeah. So if you want go ahead and dive into that metaphor yeah. a bit for us. Yeah, I so I use I actually do use the uh, plumber, I use painter sometimes. What I want mm-hmm. those listening to think of is think about your house, think about what happens when you have a leaky faucet, right? Or think about it when you want to have your house painted. You know, what do you do? Do you hire someone to work for you as your employee? No. Right? Maybe you, someone gives you a referral or something and someone comes out in a truck and they might have their own company. Right, and they say, "Okay, what do you need done? Here's what I need done. Great. Here's what it's going to cost. We'll get to work and we'll get it done." 
They already have the training. They already have the experience. They likely already have the tools, right? And they're not working for you for years on end or months on end. You're doing this project, and then they're gone, right? And while they're working for you, they may be working for 10, 20, 30, 40 other people. If they have a large company, it could be you know hundreds of people that clients they have at any one time they're servicing. Um, and that's, that's why I think it's such a great analogy because that's an example of when you're hiring a clinical contractor, Right. Essentially, that's what you're doing. You're hiring someone to do a specific job, not plumbing, but maybe provision of therapy. And you're paying them a very specific rate or amount to do that job. Um, and they could be working for three other company uh, practices. They can do, you know, have their own employees or contractors, um, you know, and typically when you hire that plumber, you're signing some sort of financial document. Right. I agree that, uh, you know, you're going to these services and I'm going to pay you X sign. Well, the same mm-hmm. things with contract cl- clinical contractors, right? Typically, you should have. I want to say this because some people don't think that, that, that they don't. And I've seen this happen, but in my opinion, you should always have a contract when you have a clinical contractor, you know, detailing what exactly the relationship is and and what's supposed to happen and what's supposed to be paid. Right, right. Like if you can take the plumber experience longer, it's not like you have a leaky faucet and it's sort of like. Um, Okay, I want you to fix this faucet, but I I want you to come around, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, every day for the next three years, and I'm just going to have you do all these little things. You know, I'm going to give you my own. I'm going to give you your own family email address. Correct. So, you know, and you start to, and you're, you know, what I'm actually going to provide. I got uh, a a set of plumbing tools Mm -hmm. that I'm going to let you use to to do all this work. And by the way, uh, because I, I prefer these tools. And by the way, I'm a plumber too, and I'm going to teach you how the best way to do the plumbing job that I'm hiring you to do. So sit on down. I'm going to teach you all about plumbing. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I encourage those listening to try that with the plumber that you hire and see how that response is going to go. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you know what? Um, you know, we have we have meetings every Wednesday with our family, right. and uh, you're going to join those. Sure. You know what? And I'm actually going to buy I'm going to buy food for you mm-hmm. as well. I'm going right. to provide lunch and food and pay for all that. And if you have to, you know, if you want to go learn something, I'm going to reimburse sure. you for that stuff too. So, so and we and want I vacation. Listeners, and don't, if, don't forget the vacation, right? Right? Oh, you want to go on vacation? Right. I got that covered for you. Don't worry. <laughs> That's right. But you can only take it for two weeks, right? <laughs> during this during this right. month, right? So th- yeah, the reason why we're <laughs> we're laughing a little bit is is I want because this is a this is a, a topic that I think we really need to get right mm-hmm. uh, as practice owners. Sure. And so the more you kind of think like the plumber, like, and then how you treat your contractors mm-hmm. in your practice. We're starting to blur that line a lot because a lot of us, a lot of practice owners, do that. They'll provide lunches, they'll provide tools, Correct. they'll provide all those things for for their contractors. And um, as the IRS is going to look at that contractor, so you get audited, um, those things are going to come up, and they're going to be like, "This person's actually more like an employee." Now, let's talk about the number two thing, which can, can I, I scour the. Can I just add one comment? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Um, mm-hmm. To those listening, you may seem to be saying, well, well, of course I know. I get what you're saying, or I know a little bit about this, so of course I'm not going to give them benefits. Okay. But are you going to give them an email, email address? Are they going to have an office that they're going to be working in your office? Are they going to have internet access in that office? So some of these are fine. It's okay to do, like, you know, as we'll probably discuss, but the point is, is it's a slippery slope. Right, it's very easy mm-hmm. to start slipping into that mode of blurring those lines, and that's where the danger, I think, to your point is. Yeah, even even so far as having their name mm-hmm. picture on your website. Mm-hmm. So, would you actually, if you had a family website or whatever, would you put your plumber on that? Right, <laughs> like, but I really like you know, him so, or her. <laughs> yeah, I, they feel like they're a part of the family. So that that's another thing because to the outside, they may not look. They looks like a part of the team, part of the employee. So, all right. So I, I'd love for you to walk us through a little bit. Okay. What are the financial risks of a practice owner mm-hmm. if they misclassify a contract? Okay. So one of the things that I get from people is, um, okay, so, you know, I have to do this right. Okay. And, and how do I know? Like, are they going to like, you know, are they looking over my shoulder? Like, how do I know when I'm getting in trouble? Right. And typically, you know, it, File, I think filing your taxes or things like that can obviously trigger the audit or, or trigger a look into it. But it can also be, and this has happened with a, with clients of mine, where somebody wasn't clear, somebody goes and files for unemployment. 
And then suddenly the state is like, what's going on here? Right? And that's when the, the tension kind of zooms in on you. Um, so the simple answer is if, you, if, if you're caught and you're found to have misclassified an employee, and what we're talking about misclassification, what we're saying is you have somebody that, let's say, the state or federal government says, IRS says, you know what? We think this person is an employee, but you are treating them as a contractor. That's the misclass. That's what we mean by misclassification. Um, and so, essentially, the problem here for practices is that if you are found liable, you could owe a lot of money, right? It can be very financially expensive for you. Um, you know, you may be liable for paying um, uh, outstanding monies, um, ammonias, I should say, like employment taxes, Social Security, um, any other fees. Um, outstanding pay, unpaid overtime. So it could be a small amount or it could be a really huge amount depending on how – So let's say the contractor makes like 100000 a year, right? Mm-hmm. If a, a contractor makes $100,000 a year at your practice, mm-hmm. you're looking at paying like what? One or two years worth of that 7.5% sure. and the overtime, mm-hmm. all that – Think about the overtime, right? Overtime is anything that's over – well, Maryland, for example, anything that's over 40 hours. Mm-hmm. So if over the course of a year that person has worked, you know, multiple times a week over 40 hours and all of a sudden they come back and say to you, hey, by the way, you now owe overtime for this entire past year. That's a lot of money. Mm. And that's On top of the in- unemployment tax. Correct. <laughs> unemployment, Social Security. You know, it, it, it is not an understatement to say that if a practice messes this up badly enough, and not even that badly, it could bankrupt the practice. A practice. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's what for I want to make sure to everyone listening is like, it's not like okay, I pay three thousand dollars, I'm done. It's not like that. You're lucky mm. if that's what it is. <clears throat> right, tens of thousands Correct. of dollars is probably what you're looking at. Yeah. And how far can the RRS potentially go back? So and say all these years. So you know, I've always said to my my clients, right, to be on the safe side. Um, is you should be able to document and you know and justify. I say ten years, right, to be on the safe side for my clients, right, because you have ample documentation at that point, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tend to be more conservative, so I tend to say to my clients, do this, you know, in ex- to exhaustively if you can, since. Most people are using a payroll system. Um, they're using some sort of financial, um, uh, 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 I don't want to say, I guess, processing system to to pay, you know, to, to collect mm-hmm. fees. Like QuickBooks or Gusto or something yeah, like that. It's yeah. not that hard to do that, to, to store this information, and, you know, as long as you're doing it right. So I am mm-hmm. saying be a little more exhaustive so that if something comes up, you can be like, boom, here's everything I have, and here's it all in order. Yeah. So could, but as far as the IRS, like, could they say, hey, you know, this person's been a contractor for mm-hmm. five years. Mm-hmm. They've really been an employee. Mm-hmm. You have to owe unemployment for the, or, or like payroll taxes mm-hmm. and all that for mm-hmm. the last five years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they can absolutely, yeah. They can come back and say, here's the time, you know, time range that we found that you have, you know, that you've not done this correctly. And you're now on the hook for all the money for all those years. I can think about, yeah, that would just do. And that's not just the IRS. Practice Maryland, you know, like the state can do it too. Well, then their state. Right. Oh, yeah. So oh, we're in Illinois. I'm in Illinois. Right. Heck yeah, they're coming after. Oh, yeah. Maryland loves to get paid. <laughs> like, Maryland loves to get paid, right? All, all The government loves to get paid. So if the IRS does this and then it triggers an investigation, it's it's possible, it's likely that the state might also. And if you violate it on one level, you know, it's very likely then you're going to have violated on the, on the state level too and vice versa. So. You know, yeah. it's. It, I think we both are hammering home point to home to those listening. Is this is really serious, right? And there's two things yeah. I always tell yeah. people who have a group practice that you must have: an accountant and a lawyer. <laughs> that's right, and good contracts. <laughs> right. Well, that, that's From, the thing. Right, the drawn lawyer, by the lawyer. Right, <laughs> and an accountant who's you know keeping tabs on everything and making sure everything's being done right. Yeah. So I imagine you know. For the people listening, okay, they're like, all right, I have to, I have to make some changes. And here's the thing: I go back to as I've been understanding this myself mm-hmm. for the for my clients, help my clients process this. Like the the cost benefit analysis mm-hmm. compared to what you're at risk and liable for, the 
it makes a lot more financial sense to just have them as employee because if they're an employee, the IRS is like that's they're satisfied in a lot of ways that way because they're collecting the payroll tax. You know, the government's getting paid, so you have a lot more flexibility with an employee and lower, you know, less liability when it comes to all those back taxes and everything else than you would have to with a contractor. I agree, and I think that's why. You know, I was saying you know earlier in the show. Um, you know, when it comes to practices that are growing, you know, there is a reason. This is one of the reasons why it's not uncommon. In fact, it's very common um, that practices will start to migrate to a you know W two model, employee model from contractors mm-hmm. um, as they grow, because it just yeah. becomes too cumbersome. To, there's too much needs the practice has. Um, it's safer. It's far safer. Um, and again, as we mentioned about the, the culture, so it just becomes an easier model. I do think yeah. that there is merit, um, and I agree with it, that if you're a solo practice owner and you're saying to yourself, I want to get started and start having more people work for me, sure, I can see and understand, and there are ways to do it, to have a contractor, two contractors, three contractors, right? There's ways to do that, yeah. and that's fine. Right, it does make sense early on, but I do think that as time goes on and as your practice thrives and you make more money, you're going to have to go the model of the employee at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, before we jump into the next, the the third thing, as we kind of walk through the common law test a bit, mm-hmm. uh, could the IRS also go after the contractor itself and inflict penalties on them? Sure. So the thing about that is. If the contractor, right, is responsible for paying taxes, um, or paying uh, paying whatever um, local, state, local, federal fees, taxes that are owed, and they're not paying those, and the IRS or the state is investigating, and they say, well, look, uh, in addition to the practice not paying what we what we're owed, um, you, the contractor, didn't pay us what were what was owed. Um, absolutely, I, you know, I think it could trigger it. Um, it's not, you know, I as you, as those listening are probably li- are you know hearing, um, it is not a good situation all around. And the best yeah. cure to that, <laughs> right? The best cure to that is from the very get go. This is not an area you should never cut corners, and this is one of the areas that you should absolutely never cut corners. You need to be crossing your yeah. T's and dotting your eyes at all times, and that's why I, I say, and I, I say this on my own podcast because um, we we talk about compliance. Um, this is why you must, and I'm not saying you should, I'm saying you must. You want to have a practice, especially a group practice, you must have an attorney. You must have a, an accountant. They mu- you know, they often do work or, or talk to each other. Um, there is some overlap. Um, but you must be doing this because, as you said, the state and the federal government, they, if they think they're owed money, they're going to get their money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now with the IRS, you know, looking to hire a few extra thousand people to look into this even more. Mm-hmm. So correct. Um, Now's the time to start. Okay. This out. Oh, right. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you got to start doing your due diligence mm-hmm. here. Okay. So let's jump into the third uh, section of this podcast is the IRS uses a common law test to determine if your contractor should be classified as an employee. And this test looks like three factors to help businesses uh, determine whether or not a worker should be classified as an employee or a contractor. And again, we're going to have a breakdown of this on a, on a PDF that you can download on our website at brandyourpractice.com. And so there's really kind of three major areas, and I'll just do a quick uh, overview of this, uh, Daniel. There's the three is the behavior control, financial control, and then the type of of the relationship. So Daniel, I don't know if you wanted to jump in sure. and, and start with the uh, behavioral control. Sure. Let me put my professor hat on and start my lecture. No. Um, so uh, I, I, when I talk to clients about this, I break it down into two, two or three points per um, section here, right? Behavioral control refers to what you, the practice owner, controls, right? What control do you as an employer have over your staff? You know, this includes uh, where the, and when the work is performed, what tools are being used, um, you know, how's the purchasing um, of supplies happening, who's doing it, um, and what and how the work to be performed is to be done. Right. Um, you know, is there on the job training? Um, are there systems? So if you're saying, look, in order to 
to be a clinical therapist for me um, who's a contractor. You need to know how to use simple practice, so here's an overview of simple practice. That's different than, hey, you have no idea how to do therapy, so I'm going to teach you how to be a clinical therapist right now, right? It's very different types of training. Um, So if you're just training on how to use the systems to do the job or you're providing training on how to actually, you know, do the job in in general. um, Right. You know, um, one example I see of this that practices fall into or or kind of run into is when I have a clinician tell me that they want to have someone available to work for them on evening or weekend hours. And they say, right, so can I hire a contractor to do that? And I'm like, I guess if the contractor wants to, but can you tell them? No, you cannot. And that's that's the problem. To your point uh, a minute ago, is as you're expanding and now you have 100 clients, 200, 300 clients a week that you're seeing, you're likely going to have clients who have needs for evening and weekend appointments. And so you're going to need to be able to set a schedule and have someone available to work those hours. And that's not going to be a contractor unless, again, they want to. But if you want someone to set mm-hmm. those hours, that's an employee. You know, you're setting their schedule, you're dictating when and how they work. Um, yeah, that's what I would say about that. I'm thinking about it. Honestly. Yeah, and and to that point, like uh, I've been thinking through an example for one of my clients is like, okay, we want to move everyone. You know, we're moving people to employees or even salaried from W two part time or whatever to mm-hmm. salary. But they said, well, there's there's a couple contractors. They want to be contractors, and but they, you know, the practice has some availability on the weekends that nobody's working. So I said, well, what if, if the contractor wants to say, hey, if you want to work at the practice, um, we only have weekends available. If you want those hours, you can have those. Um, and then we just draw that up in the contract saying, would that is that like an okay – because the understanding with the contractor, like we're not um, telling them on the work, but I, – I, <laughs> I, 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 That makes me queasy still. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because you're not, I would question as to whether you're really giving that contractor a choice, right? Mm. If they want to work for you, you're saying, well, great. If you want to work for me, these are the hours I have available, okay? Mm. So you're actually sort of setting those hours for them (laughs) indirectly, right? right? And that would make me somewhat concerned. One of the things that I really want to stress here for everyone listening is what we're saying today and when you consult with an attorney about this or in general, you know, there is no one size fits all rule here. That's what and right. the IRS doesn't even apply one size fits all. They're going to look at it on a case by case basis. So that's the case here, too, with this particular question is, you know, I would say as you know, we joke in the legal world, the favorite a lawyer's favorite word is that it is depends. It depends. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I would be queasy about someone putting in a contract. You are going to work these hours. Right for a contractor, that is right. Um, instead, mm-hmm. it may be that you're going to work and do 15 clinical hours minimum. Great, okay. I'll pay you X amount of percentage of the hours you work. Great. What hours you want to work? Yeah. I want to work on the weekends and and, and and evenings. Perfect. I have availability. Then let's let's have you do that. Right. The contractor has very clearly in that case made this decision. In my opinion. Uh, it's it's a one of those things where it's a minute it's a very fine line but i think it's a, it's one that's very important yeah yeah good that's helpful i mean i know like private practice also have they have to provide couches and chairs and for the office you know all those things mm-hmm. so in some ways you're providing some things for the contractor i'm curious in in your conversation with practice owners where would you say like okay um do your best to not provide these things sure. in the office setting for your contractors. I'll give you an example. So to your point about couches, right? I think of it as like this. If you have an office, you're going to have electricity. You're going to have internet at the office. Um, by nature, you're going to have offices, if you have them, right, with a desk, probably a chair, okay? Just by nature of the fact that you have an office and you have people working there, employees, whoever, that's just going to be there, right? So if someone, mm-hmm. a contractor comes to your office and says, I'm going to sit over here at this desk and, and I'm going to see, or I'm going to see it, sit here in this office and see this client on this couch. Okay, right? You're not, in my opinion, you're not directly providing that contractor that, right? That's something that the office is going to have in general, okay? 
where I've seen the problems that come up for me is where then I talk to a client and they're like, well, we have a supply closet. And, you know, whenever the contractor or anyone in the office needs something, they can go get paper, they can go get pens, you know, um, they need a laptop. So we help them get a laptop. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we need to stop that right now. Like you need, you cannot be doing that. If I'm a contractor and I'm coming to do clinical work, I need to have my own laptop, right? I need to have my own pens. You know, I need to have my own computer bag. You know, I can use the office internet. Sure. I'm going to be using the simple practice or whatever the, 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 the EHR that, that the practice has, of course. Um, you know, I may connect to the printer if I need to print something out, but you need to be very careful about what you're providing specifically that practitioner, right? And I think it's that's the key is it's specifically versus the entire broad office, right? Mm -hmm. If you happen to have a conference room and there's donuts in there, hey, everyone, I brought donuts in this morning, and your contractor walks by and just grabs one, I, that's okay. I'm not that concerned about that. But if you're saying your contractor, no, uh, or, no, 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 don't touch that donut. You. You're a contractor. No, <laughs> but if it's like, okay, contractors, I'm going to bring lunch every day for you. That makes me very concerned. Right. That's mm -hmm. the difference. See, and it's again, it's a fine line. Right. And it's very easy to blur yep. those lines, and it's very easy for a practice, well-meaning practice, to start mixing these up. Yeah. Okay. That's really helpful. Is there anything else around behavioral control you want to address? Because I have a couple other things, but I think we can move on to the next one if, if you don't have anything else. One thing I would just say to everyone is it's it, behavior control is what is the nature of the behavior? What's, what's happening with this contractor, right? What's happening with this employee? What's the control like? What, you know, I don't want to say relationship because that's one of the other points, but it's about the behavior aspect, and, and, and that's where I'll leave it, I guess. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, let's jump into the next one, the financial control. Okay. If you kind of give an overview of that, sure. and we can dive in. So at face value, this is exactly what it sounds like. It's about you know money and financing and you know, the, the financial control here, right? So it's really as to what um, whether the practice owner has um, uh, – uh, the, the right to control what we call the economic part of that worker's job, right? So this includes how are they paid, right? Whether expenses are reimbursed, you know, who's, you know, who, again, who's providing the tools and supplies? Um, what's the opportunity for profit and loss? That's a big one, right? You know, expenses, again, could be CEUs, travel costs, business costs, cell phones, internet, right? If your contractor says, all right, I need to have 20 CEUs for my license this year, right? Great. I'll cover those for you. No, you won't. <laughs> That's a business expense of the contractor. The contractor needs to cover that expense. But mm -hmm. for an employee, sure, right? That's not unusual. That's a very nice gesture towards your staff, you know, staff to say, hey, Ron, we'll cover your CEUs. Or there's a conference in California. We're going to pay for everyone's you know, cost to go to that conference to get these CEUs. As an employee, you can do that. As a contractor, you cannot. Okay. Um, regarding profits and loss, and, and, and what I mean by the opportunity for profits or loss, um, you know, for example, if a contractor doesn't show up to do the work, they don't get paid, right? If you're a plumber, let's go back to the plumber. If you're like, all right, plumber, I need you mm -hmm. to fix my sink today, and they don't show up, you're not giving them payment because they didn't show up, <laughs> right? If they show up, you did the work, I pay you, right? So in Maryland, for example, this might be a, um, a clinician who, contractor who gets paid a percentage of each session or each hour that they work, right? If they don't come to work that day, they're not getting paid that percentage because they didn't do the work. Employees, though, mm -hmm. may take a sick day, right? If you have employees and you provide paid sick leave, right? If they're like, I'm going to call out today, I'm really under the weather, great. I don't want you coming in my office anyway. Don't get us sick. But it's a paid day. So they didn't do any work, but they're still getting paid, right? Mm -hmm. um, also, we're talking about things like bonuses, right? End of the year. We did great. It was a wonderful year. Everyone worked really hard. Everyone's getting a $1,000 bonus. Great. You cannot do that for a contractor, right? The contractor, it's mm -hmm. the contract says, I'm going to pay you X amount of whatever for the services, the clinical ther therapy. That's what you're paying them, right? You can't be giving them. Um, because it's outside that contract, yeah, and that's right? What I the say. agreed terms. I, and I point and I say that to to, to, to to practitioners. The contract is what rules. It's a contractor, an independent contractor. It's right there in the name. Um, I also think this extends to the um, competition, 
right? Because the ability of someone to make money, you can control that if it's an employee. You know, a contractor, you cannot restrict your control. You can't say, sorry, you can only work for me. You cannot compete with me. If I'm a contractor, and the reason some people like the contractors is because I can work for three practices part time, or you know, generally I, I think realistically no one's going to be working for three practices full time. I think that's that's impossibility. But you can you can work for multiple practices, or you know, as a contractor with an employee, you can absolutely say as part of your employment here, we restrict your employment. You may not work for any other practice while you are working here, you know, or for a period of you know however many years after you leave or whatever it is. You can put those restrictive covenants mm-hmm. and restrict the ability of the employee or that staff member to get paid for their skills. You can't do that with a contractor. Hmm. Oh man. Okay. Two questions. Um, so you can actually then enforce or say have a contract like a no solicitation. I love this question. I love it. Or, um, or non compete when it comes to employee contracts. I love this question because this is something that I get a lot. And so my answer to you is yes. On that end, I do agree, right? You can have a contractor and say, you know, while you're working here, you know, please, you know, you may not solicit my staff to go work for your separate business, right? It's not uncommon for contract therapists to often have a side um, therapy practice themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not a, a terrible idea always to have something in place that says, look, while you're working here, you can't be encouraging my staff to leave to go to your practice or my clients, the right. clients are coming to our practice here to leave here, right? But you can't put that non-compete in place, right? You can't do that. With an employee, you can absolutely put both in. Right, you can have a non-solicit. You can have a non-compete. Right, you can set it for a certain period after a dura- you know, dur- you know, for the duration of employment and after an employment ends. Right, um, mm-hmm. it's a f- again, it's a fine line. Right, um, mm-hmm. it's something you have to be careful of. In Maryland, it's always a reasonable factor. Right, if it's unfairly prejudicial against the um, one party, it's not going to hold up no matter what you put in there. Right, some in some jurisdictions don't even allow non-competes anymore. Um, so that's another thing to be aware of is what is your jurisdiction saying when it comes to non-solicits, yeah. non-competes, things like that. What what would be an undo like unfairly restrictive non-compete? So I've seen this, right? Someone brought it to me once. It's like this is what I want to do, and I'm like, nope, <laughs> we're not doing this. <laughs> and what it was was the person said, okay, within a, a period of, of of five square miles of my office, you cannot compete for five years. And I went to them, I said, that's completely unacceptable. It's not going to fly. They could challenge this. And the reason is, look, right now, if I walk outside your door, down the street, you have at least five different therapy practices probably already operating in the area. So the idea that this person is going to leave and, and, and somewhere in his next five square miles that they're going to open up a shop and it's going to affect your bottom line, that's not, that's not accurate. That's not real. That's not, that's not legitimate. And, and it's not realistic. Um, and five years is a long time to restrict someone's ability yeah. to, to, to not work. You're, that's, the, that's the thing about non-compete you have to be very careful of. Non-compete means they can't compete with you. If I'm a therapist and I'm doing therapy for you and I leave and I have a non-compete, I can't do therapy for a certain period of time or for a certain geographic range. That's a problem. So if you're really restricting this person's ability to work, that's going to be questioned. Um, but if you say, look, I'm not going to challenge your ability to work for another practice. Just please don't work within next, in a building next to mine, which that's something that actually happened with a, one of my, pra- yeah. my clients as well. So it has to be mm. reasonable. Right. I generally tell clients when they're leaving in Maryland, when they're leaving, you know, if they have practitioners who are leaving or they have they're signing non competes, is you really don't need a geographic restriction because the reality is in, in the Baltimore area, there is tons of practices and the need is yeah, abundant. Really dense. Every practice I know has a waiting list. Right. So if someone leaves, it's likely they're not gonna really hurt your bottom line unless they solicit or take your clients or employee. That's where the impact can really come in, you know, and that's where again you can have that in place. But that also has to be reasonable too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm like I leave your practice and ten years later, you know, I talk to your one of your employees about you know what I'm doing, and they're like, "That's great, I want to come over." Like, oh, sorry, you signed a ten year non solicit. I I think that would be questioned as well. I think that's really unreasonable. Yeah. 
Okay, so when it comes to soliciting, and thank you, listeners, for hanging in. I hope this is a good conversation. Now I'm just getting really curious. So when it comes to, <laughs> so when it comes to soliciting uh, clients, so what's a reasonable like? Hey, if you're leaving the practice, you can't solicit your clients to come with you to the next class. Is that a thing? Like, can you actually right. have that in non-solicitation? So I want everyone listening. Because I know that you are going to agree with me on this, okay? The reality of the mental health world, the reality of the healthcare world, is that clients and patients will go where they want to go. Clients mm-hmm. in the therapy world, they develop bonds and relationships with their therapists. And let's be honest here. If someone is saying, I'm leaving this practice to go down the street to start my own, and that pr- client's like, I have a great relationship. I love working with you. You've been so helpful to me. It's not undue, like distance-wise, for me to go to you. You're not like charging five hundred dollars. You know, maybe you still, maybe you take insurance too. You know, it's not that hard for me to switch over to your practice. They're gonna, they're gonna leave. And in my opinion, there's really nothing a practice can do. Clients always have the right to make a healthcare decision. In my opinion, right? So when we talk about solicit, what we're really talking about is, in my opinion, it's really, really outward, like blatant soliciting, right? Hey, listen, I'm leaving the practice. I want you to come with me, right? Right. You know, don't worry about, you know, so-and-so owner. Like, just come with me and we'll, 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 we'll have you, you know, come over and you can start working with me. Now, some practices and practice owners I talk to don't care about that. Right? They're like, great, mm-hmm. no problem. I want the patient or the client to be treated. If they feel like they have a great rapport with that person, by all means, take them with you. But I'm of the mindset that when a client comes into a practice, signs your informed consent, fills out all the paperwork, while they may be working with that clinician at that practice, the reality is if you ask that client, who are you a client of, right? Not the therapist, but who are you a client of in general? Oh, well, I'm a client of ABC Therapy. Yeah, and you are. And you signed ABC Therapy's informed consent. So I'm inclined to think mm. that you are a client, that person is a client of that practice. The best way I advise practitioners who are leaving a practice, and, I've, and I, you know, and this has come up, is you say, look, to do this as neatly and cleanly as possible, have a conversation with the practice you're leaving. Figure out what are some talking points that you mutually can agree to that would make sense for you to talk to the client about. Hey, I'm leaving. Um, you know, of course, you can always make any decision you want, but I'd ask you just to have a conversation with the front office. And they can have a talk with you about whether you want to stay and be transferred to someone else in the office, um, or if you want to leave, they might, they can give you my information as well as you know three or four other people in the community. Um, but just have that conversation with the office. And I just wanted to let you know that I am leaving, um, and I've been really grateful to have this time together. However you want to phrase it, right? You do that, yeah. there's no issues with solicitation, in my opinion. There's not an argument that can be made that you solicited someone at that point. Yeah. And like this is always like the sticking point, right? Because you want to be able to protect the financial mm-hmm. aspect of your business. Yeah. So there's that. But you don't want to burn bridges. So if somebody's leaving, and I've seen this enough with working with practice owners, like if you're thinking about, if you're listening and thinking about leaving, having that conversation that Daniel just have is amazing because so you could go to them and say this way. You could have this. You could say, look, I, here's a roster of all my clients. These 10, they're ready to terminate within the next couple of weeks. So I'm going to work on terminating them. Um, here are some other ones that I think could be a really good fit for other, other people in the practice. That I'd love to transfer them over connect. There's these five or six who are just in critical work. Like, and we've been doing some deep work and sending, you know, referring them elsewhere probably isn't best for the client. Mm-hmm. Could I, you know, could I potentially talk to them and having them stay with me or something like that? Man, I tell you that would that would be a game changer for the practice owner and for you mm-hmm. and just being able to do that, you know, leaving well. Um and, yeah. And I would remind people not- listening that when you leave a practice, if you leave on good terms, um it's very likely that you will be a referral source for that practice. If you burn that Absolutely. bridge, you are burning that referral source for you. And if you're starting your own practice, that is one of the worst things you can do because you're looking to get clients. The other thing I'll say that yeah. um, you didn't mention is that um, when it comes to clients, when a practitioner goes through the practice and says, here's the list of the clients I've been seeing, one of the things that you can do that's really impressive and that's really helpful and beneficial to the clients is to figure out who are the high-risk ones 
if you're someone who's in an area like trauma, PTSD, something where you're working with people who are severely depressed or have a high risk of self-harm, right? If you are like, look, I'm leaving in 30 days, okay? Great. Well, those are people who have a critical need likely for clinical therapy, clinical services right away. Whereas if you've been seeing someone once a month and they're like, they're great, you know, they've they made a, a huge amount of progress. Now they're just kind of occasionally talking things out and, you know, it's maintenance, you know, essentially, you know, it's a less risk client. You're also now giving the practice an opportunity to help make sure that there's a continuum of care here. You're helping your clients that way. You're helping figure out who are the ones who need to, who need to be transferred right away. If I can't take them, who can? Right. And I think yeah. when you do that, um, it really goes a long way with that practice. Yeah. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that mini episode within this <laughs> totally. larger episode totally. on how to leave a practice well. Um, okay, one last question, <laughs> and then we'll move on to the third one. The other one that I wanted to talk about was, okay, you talked about if somebody, the contractor, if somebody doesn't show up, mm-hmm. that contractor doesn't get paid, right? The client doesn't show up, the contractor doesn't get paid for that missed appointment. Um, what if it's somebody who's paid, like uh, it's an employee, comes to work, is there the client, but it's the, it's an employee that's not salary, but it's a, a percentage kind of split. They get a percentage of that appointment fee. They work that hour, but the client's not there, but they're there at the office. Do you have to compensate them for that hour that they're there at the office, but the client didn't show up? So I want to be careful here um, because I always want to say okay. <laughs> that it's going to be based on, in part, on your jurisdiction. It depends. Right? It depends. <laughs> but I would say in yeah. Maryland, I would say that well, there's a there's a likelihood that you may, may still be – you're likely going to be have to pay that person. Why? Because they were there in the office still working, right? So if the person says, well, look, I caught up in my notes and I, you know, I made some other appointments. You know, I had spare time to spare, so I made some callbacks and, you know, I set up a three or four more appointments for me this week. Um, they're doing work in the office um, and I think that that – you know, it's a risky thing to say, well, you didn't do it. You know, the, the client canceled, so I'm just not going to pay you. Um, to my ears, just saying that, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel good and it doesn't mm. sound right. And I would tell people that, you know, I'm not saying the gut check is the, is, 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 you know, the only thing you should do. But if your gut's like, that doesn't feel right, that oftentimes is an inkling that there's something off there and you probably shouldn't do that or or you're not doing something right. Yeah, because you think if you're like a Starbucks employee and you're there at the office, you're there and they're like, well, there hasn't been anyone right. here for an hour and the business is like, well, you're not getting paid for that right. hour. <laughs> you're like, what? Well, or you, you're right, exactly. <laughs> you know, you know, use, you, mm. you know, to use our example before, you know, if I have a company and I have a car wash or I have Starbucks and employees are walking around, it's a slow day, right? Yeah, well, guess what? That's the thing about employees. The long-term, to, to, to those who are listening, you know, I would just say to you, if this is something you're thinking about, the reason why employees are still beneficial is because in the long-term, that person is going to still be loyal to you, right? That person has is mm-hmm. committed to your practice. You're, you're giving them the opportunity to have sick leave, 401k, whatever it is. So why should I still, well, why would I want to have an employee? Because in the long-term, they're going to make you more money. You know, even when mm-hmm. things like this happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is great. Okay, let's jump to the third and final one: the type of relationship. Okay. So, um, I would remind everyone listening: an independent contractor is somebody who's independent and who signs a contract. We are talking about the t- relationship here when we start talking about stuff like this. So, type of relationship refers to how is the employee. How do the employee employer think about their relationship, right? You know, is there a contract or is it strictly at will? You know, and by the way, you can have employment with contracts and still be employment at will. I'm not even going to get into that, but just so you know, you know, that is still an at will employment arrangement. You know, how long is the employee, is the uh, relationship for? Is it ongoing? Congratulations, you're hired as my therapist. So you're here until I fire you or you quit. Right? Or is it here's your contract and it renews year to year? And as long as we both agree, it'll continue to renew, or maybe this is for a year and at the end of the year it just terminates, right? Right? That's very specific, you know, uh, terms that govern what the relationship is and how that works. Um, are there benefits, including disability, 401k, sick leave? Who pays for that? 
right? Is the contractor paying for it for themselves, or is the is it something that the the uh, employer, the practice, is paying for? Um, you know, and that's what we're talking about. I would also throw in loyalty, right? You know, we talked about restrictive covenants, including non competes, right? This is one of those things where, as an employer. If you're my employee, I have the right to restrict your work. I have the right to set your hours. I have the right to tell you when you're going to work and what you can and cannot do, right? I have a handbook maybe, right? Right. As a contractor, you know, you may have policy procedures for the office, but the fact of the matter is at the end of the day, you come in, you do your work, you leave, right? You can go, then maybe you leave and go to the practice down the street, right? The relationship, what is defining it? How is it defined? That's what we're looking at here. Got it. And where do you see practice owners usually crossing that line sure. with contractors? So we mentioned one already, and that is, um, I think, in terms of blurring the line between employers and contracts. Right? Okay, guys, so we're going to have a meeting today. Everyone needs to be there. You know, or hey, I brought food in for the office. Contractors, I'm going to pay for, pay for your lunch today. Um, or hey, everyone, here's a bonus for the holidays. Right? So, and, and if you're listening to this, you're thinking, well, there's seems like some crossover between the three. There is. Right. There is. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, I had this happen with a practice. Right. Where a practice came to me and said, um, "Okay, so we have this person who left and they are filing for unemployment. Okay, great. So how long have they been employed for? Well, they're not. They're a contractor. Okay, that's weird. Where's the contract? Well, we never had one. Okay, well, that's Mm. a problem um, because. Right, IRS in Maryland are going to say, so you didn't have a contract, and this person's filing for unemployment. Right, that's a big, that's a big warning red light, and it's because that relationship was not defined as a in the contract. Right, so the question is, well, if they're not a contractor, right, then aren't they? What makes them not a W two employee? Right, that's where I see it. Is it's usually defining that relationship and blurring those lines. That's where the problems arise. That's where the the warning kind of signals pop up. Here is you have to be very clear in the employment relationship. Right? How is it going to happen? Are you W two? Are you at will? You know, can you quit tomorrow? Or do you have a notice provision in your contract that says you must give me thirty days? Right. That's how I would describe it. Got it. Yeah. Hmm. I think, uh, yeah, the whole idea of the contract, with, when you have a contract with a contractor, it should definitely be time-based, six months, mm-hmm. one year or something, and there's another signing. It's not this kind of indefinite thing. Like it could be with an employee, Correct. right? I've seen um, both. I am much more comfortable with year-to-year where, okay, we're going to sign a new contract now, right? The contract's up. If you want to renew, here's another contract. Sign this contract, and we start the, the the contract starts again. Not okay. I'm just going to renew it. You know, if you don't disagree, then we'll just continue having you work here indefinitely until you want to terminate the contract. Because that goes to the argument of well, what that sounds to me like W two then, right? Mm-hmm. That's my concern yep. with those type of contracts. Yeah, and if you're if a contractor is providing supervision. Along, you know, oh, making yeah. sure that there's a separate contract for that. Yeah, supervision and- contract is critically important. If you have a contract supervisor um, and they are doing something in addition to providing clinical therapy to you, they are providing any other service to you. That needs to be, and they are a contractor. They, in my opinion, you need to have a contract for that. Right. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen mm-hmm. ones where someone will bring to me and say, okay, I'm hiring this person as a contractor and they're going to do front desk work and they're going to help me with social media and they're going to help me with this and they're going to help me with that. And I'm like, no, that cannot happen. You cannot do that. Right. What's their job duties? What specifically do you want them to do? I want them to do all that. Great. Hire them as an employee. Because the contract, the point of the contract is to say, you're going to do plumbing. You're going to fix my, <laughs> my right. sink and I'm going to pay you $500. Great. Well, you're going to come in. You're going to do clinical therapy, right? Great. I'm going to give you X amount percentage of every session you hold. Great. For a year. That's right. Perfect. Set terms. If you want them then to do something else, then you need to hire that. You need to have them sign a contract to do that, in my opinion. Yeah, that's really helpful. 
Right, yeah. Because you can't tell the plumber, like, hey, yeah, and I also need you to go pick up my kids oh after my God, school. Right. And, uh, you know, you know, like <laughs> like all these other things. Wait, wait, your He's like, well, that's an extra. Uh, my my, my RVs are eggs. Um, yeah. I also need laundry folded. So while you're here and waiting, can you just help me fold laundry? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, I think we, yeah, I think we're done with the plumbing analogy. Uh, <laughs> on that All right. So the things we talked about, uh, we talked about the overhead, like the over idea of what a, a, a contractor and employee is. Then we talked about the risks of misclassifying the financial risks that you, ha- you have, uh, that can, you can incur. And then the third thing we talked about was the, how the IRS, the kind of the common law, r- the rules in which they kind of determine, uh, what a contractor is. And, uh, so those are the big kind of big three things. And I'm looking at if there's any other, um, questions here, but actually know what, before we get to the final, um, questions, I do have one more announcement here. And before we go on, I do want to remind the listeners about a free resource you can take advantage of today. If you are a mental health professional and you want to start your own practice, but you don't know where to begin. I put together a free step-by-step launch guide, and it's a checklist that I use to launch and grow over 10 brand new private practices with my clients over the past five years. Uh, it's a very detailed checklist that's easy to follow, and there's links to, dozen to ho- dozens of how-to videos that I've created to help you along the way. You just go to brandyourpractice.com slash checklist. Look, every airline pilot follows a pre-flight checklist, and every astronaut follows a launch checklist. If you're going to launch your website or your practice, download my free checklist today at brandyourpractice.com slash checklist. Uh, man, Dan, this has been like a feast of information. So thank you for uh, all the t- <laughs> a lot of information. Um, before we kind of wrap up a couple of questions I have here, I just want to follow up on how can people find more about you and what you do. Sure. So you can always uh, go to our webpage, uh, www. Um, it's my name, DanielMayerLaw.com. Uh, it's M A Y E R. Um, you can also, you know, like uh, was said, I have a podcast. You can go to our podcast webpage. It's protectingyourpractice.com. Uh, you can contact me at uh, simply, just really, you know, make it simple. Just contact us at admin. You know, so admin at DanielMayerLaw.com. Um, we are on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, feel free to reach out. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. A um, couple follow-up questions, and we'll let our listeners go. Uh, what do employers have to abide by for paid uh, days off. So, for, so for example, <laughs> this is from my wife. Mm-hmm. She, I wanted to know about this. So, Christmas is on a Sunday mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the designated day off is a Monday. Does that Monday count as personal time off or is that actually count as like the federal holiday or whatever? Well, if you're in private practice, right? You know, I are, I would generally say you can set what hours, whatever hours you want. Now, whether you're not going to have people come in on Christmas Day, no, probably not, right? Um, <laughs> the, the, certainly, banks might be closed on, on a federal holiday, you know. But like, mm-hmm. I'll give you an example that came up recently was, you know, for some like Veterans Day or things like that. There are lots of businesses that are open; it's still a federal holiday. Um, mm-hmm. It's really going to come down to, you know, if you're employee, if you're doing employees, um, you know, what your hours. I see handbooks where you know and I, I think it's a good idea where you lay out exactly what are the actual set holidays that the office is closing on okay you lay those out and then mm. you know yeah then you have your paid leave um you know um in in maryland for example um if you're under a certain number of employees you can do unpaid leave you know and then you have your your paid or unpaid leave hours and if someone wants to take off that day they can um and you can certainly set how much notice they have to give you and things like that. Um, but I do think that these are tricky. And when you have something like, well, you know, Christmas falls on a Saturday, but really, you know, what about Monday or New Year's falls on a Saturday, but what about New Year's Day, which falls on a Monday or whatever it is, you know, I think as an employer, um, you need to take that into account. When it comes to contractors, you know, as we said, like, you're out of luck, right? If the contractor says, I'm not coming in, it's New Year's Day. Okay. Right. They're not going to get paid, but yep. they're not coming in. There's, you can't tell them, sorry, I need you here. Right. But an employee, sure. Right. Like, look, it's July 4th, I know, but July 3rd, it's a Friday today. I really need everyone in the office today to get everything done before the holiday weekend. You can do that. Got it. 
That's it. That's the only follow-up question I have. That was really helpful. So just have the employer – if you're an employer, just set in your handbook, these are the days that the offices are going to be closed. I look at the handbook – so clinicians, so you can understand this, I look at the handbook kind of like the same way that you look at the informed consent when you give your clients. Why do you give clients Mm -hmm. informed consent? I always go back to this with clinicians. It's informed consent. You want them to be as informed as possible so they can make a decision as to whether to retain your services to do therapy with them. So you need to give them as much information as you want so they can make that decision. With employees, I think that's the same thing with handbook. You set the policies that you want the employees to know to be accountable to, right? And you put that in writing so that if an employee doesn't um, follow that, right, then you have the opportunity to follow up with and say, these are our policies. They were written in advance. You were given them, you know, notice of it. It's very clear to everyone what the rules are, what, you know, and you can also set that in your um, offer letter. With 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 uh, with uh, when you're hiring an employee, yeah. Hey, we offer you know all the the holiday major holidays. We're, you know we're closed, so you don't have to worry about that. You know, give the, the kind of that kind of information to employees. The more information you give their employees, the more they'll be able to comply with your expectations about what's needed. Ah, awesome! Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and please be uh, sure to go check out the podcast that Daniel mentioned, protectingyourpractice.com, and then Daniel Meyer Law. Mayor, mm-hmm. DanielMayorLaw.com. Um, but all right, all right, folks, thanks for hanging in there. If you found the conversation useful, subscribe to the podcast and please join me for the next time on the next episode of the Brand Your Practice podcast.